If you want to take your Bibles and turn, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4. Just kind of give you a little, uh, maybe preview, unless the Lord changes the plans. I had planned in June to break from Mark anyway and, and look at Habakkuk, which I still would like to do at some point. But I'm actually planning now the next five weeks to do just a mini series on the topic of hope. Um, I've been really convicted over the last several months that my attitude is often very hopeless. And so as I've thought about that and worked through that, I just I want to want to take a little bit of time and just set aside five weeks and think about the theme of hope. I'll spend mostly in the New Testament, although there will be at least one sermon out of the Old Testament on that on that theme. Uh, but just how central hope is to our lives as Christians. Um, so we'll look at that. But now we're going to take a good chunk here in Mark chapters 4 and 5 and, and look at those. And then we'll return to Mark come July. One statement that I've heard on numerous occasions, whether in the context of a casual conversation or if I'm listening to a formal debate is that if God were real and he wanted to make himself known, he could sure be a lot more obvious than he has been. The fact that he doesn't show up in a way that says that the rights in skywriting across the sky, God is real. And I didn't need a plane to say this. I just wrote it in the clouds. The fact that God doesn't do that. The fact that he doesn't visibly show up the way he supposedly did in the Gospels shows that God either isn't real or that if he were real but wasn't willing to reveal himself more clearly, then we can't trust him. There's no basis for really believing in God or trusting him. Now, if we read the Gospels, we know that that's nonsense. People did see Jesus. He was so present as to, like, sit across the table from you and talk to you. They didn't just see Jesus. They saw him do miraculous things that proved who he was. And still, those who knew him, those who saw him, often found themselves confused by him, afraid of him, or repulsed by him. They didn't say, oh, here is God. Let me worship and adore him. Instead, they were repelled by Jesus. They saw him, but they did not have the eyes of faith which were necessary to really see him. They were presented with the Messiah and they responded wrongly. Some loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's where we all naturally are. Others, like the disciples, had their eyes opened but slowly, like the man in Mark chapter 8 who gets this progressive miracle of sight where at first Jesus touches his eyes and spits in his eyes and then he he sees shapes walking around like trees and then eventually he can see all the way. And the disciples are like that. They see through a glass darkly, but their vision becomes clearer and clearer. We've talked about multiple times recently the fact that seeing is not synonymous with believing. We've talked about in the sense that, that we need to pray for faith to see what God is doing even when we can't see it with our eyes. Like when when the, the seed is planted and it's working underneath the ground, we can't see that that's happening, but we need to have faith that he is at work. But today what we're going to see is the need to pray for that same divine enablement, that same gift of sight, even 
when Jesus is working, even when God's action is perfectly visible. We're going to see that in a series of confrontations in our text, the the fact that it's all too easy to see what God is doing and to respond in the wrong way. So first, let's set the scene here for Mark chapter 4. It's very possible that the teachings in Mark chapter 4 all took place at the same time. Uh, It's also possible that they took place at different times uh, and that Mark has just brought them together under one theme. But the time markers in the passage seem to indicate that at least the beginning of the teaching in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower, takes place at the same time or right beforehand of what we're going to read here in Mark 4 and 5 at the verses 35 and following. Verse 1 says he was teaching beside the sea and the crowds were pressing into him so tightly that he retreats to a boat to teach so that he's got some space from the crowds. After he teaches that parable, he then explains it privately to his disciples in verse 11. And then verses 33 and 34, we read that that's kind of the pattern that Jesus followed in his teaching. He never taught without parables. And then he pulled away with his disciples and explained to them clearly in private the things that he was saying. So when we come to verse 35 and we see on that day, we're we're probably supposed to think of at the very beginning of chapter 4, the day when the crowds had been pushing in tightly to Jesus such that he he had had to retreat and there he spent this whole day teaching them. And we might rightly assume then that Jesus is exhausted. Being outside in the sun all day is exhausting. Sitting on a boat in the sun can be draining for your body. And add to that the weight of many people and their problems, the duty of preaching the word. I, th- I think about this. Jesus is spending all day teaching. I spend half an hour or 40 minutes teaching, and I, I'm gassed the rest of the day on Sunday. <clears throat> I, I, the times I've preached at LBC, and I do it twice. You get done the first time, you're like, how am I going to do this again? And, and Jesus spent all day teaching. He, he had to have had been just shot emotionally, mentally, physically at the end of this day. He's probably very ready in his humanity to take a nap as they cross the lake over to the country of the Gerasenes. Verse 35 and following here in Mark 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Uh, that that note, I don't have anything in the sermon on this, but verse 36, that the other boats were with him. It's just one of those details in Mark that points to this being an eyewitness account. That those other boats don't really serve any point in the story other than to say, hey, we, I, I saw this with my own eyes, guy. Peter is, is relating this to Mark. There's other boats crossing with them. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, that is Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And put yourself for a moment in the shoes of the disciples. They too have had a long day. You know, they're running interference for Jesus. They're trying to keep the crowds back or filter who gets too close to Jesus. And then eventually they're the ones, like they're the people who know boats, at least those who have been fishermen. And so they get Jesus on the boat. They get him out away from shore. And and if you've been in any kind of setting where you've had to listen to teaching for a long time, whether it's like a work conference or some kind of Bible conference, and you've or you've been, you just remember school, some of you are still pretty close to school or in school. 
Like listening to teaching all day can make you want to go to sleep, right? <laughs> they've, they've been listening to Jesus, and no matter how engaging a speaker he was, you can imagine that listening for hours on end was its own kind of exhausting. And now here they are out on the Sea of Galilee. Now for those who in the group were fishermen, they, they know this water. They've, they've traversed it, especially at night, many times. That They would have gone out at night typically because the weather was calmer and it would have been more safe. But this time a storm still builds up. Here in the middle of the night, and the, the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's more like, I mean, in Luke he calls it a lake because compared to regular seas, it's, it's actually pretty small. But it's, it's set geographically in this place where it's surrounded by mountains. And the nearest, the highest mountain in the area is like over 9,000 feet in elevation. And the Sea of Galilee sits 900 feet below sea level. And so it just forms this giant wind tunnel. And so these storms can kick up out of nowhere. And that's exactly what happens here. The windstorm arose and they have this low-sided fishing vessel that would have been easy to pull nets over with loads of fish in them. And this low-sided vessel now starts taking on water. And the panic they felt was entirely reasonable from a human perspective. We're out here in the middle of the lake. Here the wind is coming and bringing water into our boat. What are we going to do? We're all going to drown. Was Jesus panicked by, by this storm raging on? Apparently not because he's sleeping, right? The, the vessels apparently had cushions intended for one guy at a time to take a rest, and Jesus is taking full advantage of it. I think it's worth noting that this is the only time in the Gospels that we read of Jesus sleeping. And we know in his humanity he slept every night except for when he didn't to stay up all night and pray. But for the most part, Jesus slept every night. But the one time we're actually shown Jesus sleeping. So other times he's distressed and tired. But here we see him sleeping. The only time the scriptures mention it is in the middle of a raging storm. The that context, I think, is important. The disciples go to Jesus and they wake him up. But they don't ask, Jesus, can you help us? Instead, they ask, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You ever talk to God that way? The storms of your life are raging, whether that's a literal storm causing damage to your property, a relationship that's falling apart, major disappointment, in your career, the death of someone you love, an illness that you are continuing to struggle with, a major financial crisis. Like, storms come in all shapes and sizes. And you go to God and you pray something like, don't you even care? I thought you loved me and worked things out for good. Well, what's with this mess, God? As we're going to see, Jesus is going to return the disciples' rebuke with some pointed questions of his own. But while... While we should realize that the disciples' fear is misplaced and their rebuke of Jesus is uninformed and unwise, I do want to commend them for getting this thing right. The most important thing, they went to Jesus with their fears. We're never right to question if Jesus knows what we're going through, and we're never right to doubt the goodness of God. But the fact remains that there are lots of times when that is precisely what we are doing. We're afraid and we doubt. What should we do with our fears and our doubts? Get angry with Jesus? Try to hide from Jesus? 
ignore him and try to solve our problems on our own? No, we should join David, who in Psalm 13, 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's how the psalmists teach us to pray. We must do exactly what the disciples did in this circumstance. Go wake Jesus up, as it were, and ask him your questions. Plead with him in your fear. That's exactly what prayer is at times, going to God and saying, I don't understand how life can be like this and you love me at the same time. Please help me understand. Or to quote Psalm 13:3, consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. It's only through this process of going to God with our doubts and with our fears that that David in Psalm 13 can land in the place of confidence he comes to in verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The same psalm that starts, where are you, God, ends with, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Because he went to God with his doubts and his fears about God. Don't hide your doubts from Jesus. He sees them anyway. Take your fear and your distress to him. The next confrontation we read of in this text is after the disciples wake Jesus up. He doesn't immediately address them. He ignores them at first. He just stands up and looks at the storm and speaks to the wind and the waves. Verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I don't know what the disciples expected when they woke Jesus up. But we're going to see in a moment that this was not what they expected when they woke Jesus up. Jesus' first words are to rebuke, rebuke the wind and the waves. He says, peace, be still. And like the demons, the storm recognizes the voice of its creator. Nature responds in obedience to her Lord and master. Jesus, again, demonstrates his power over nature and produces, in the place of chaos, calm. Do you know that this is what Jesus desires to produce in your life as well? When the scriptures speak of a peace that passes understanding, Philippians 4-7, this is what it means. That regardless of whatever external storms might be raging, the reality of being in the boat with Jesus ought to bring a sense of inner calm and order to your life. Though though by nature we are enemies of God and deserve his just wrath, Jesus came into the world to bear the weight of our sins and God's anger towards those sins. That's the worst storm you could ever face is God's own anger against you and you deserve it. But if we trust in the shed blood of Jesus, we might be for, we will be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to him, adopted as his children. Forgiveness is purchased by Jesus at the cross, and those who receive that forgiveness become God's children. And knowing that that is who you are, if you've trusted in Jesus, that is who you are, God's child. He is with you and protecting you, and that has a way of steadying and anchoring your soul, regardless of what life may throw in your direction. If you don't know Jesus, you are at the mercy of life's storms. You've got to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for forgiveness and submit to him as your Lord and your God. 
or you will remain in your own fleshly boat waiting to capsize at any moment. But if you know Jesus, you can have true peace even in the middle of the storm. The Christian, Christian believer in Jesus, do you know that peace? It doesn't always come easily. It's not like a magic formula that instantly takes away your worries, right? Your stresses, your anxieties. But if you will keep going to Jesus, keep asking him to reveal those areas where you've believed the lie that he doesn't care or doesn't know what's best, he will reveal, sometimes quickly, sometimes over the course of long years. And he will bring you to a place of peace where you can rest evermore on the abundance of his gracious care. This gracious care is precisely what the disciples should have expected from Jesus, but they didn't. And so Jesus confronts them in verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were filled with great fear. Don't say to Jesus, don't say anything to Jesus. They say to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples have been with Jesus and they... They come to him, but they hadn't actually trusted in his care or even in his apparently ability to address the situation. Maybe they're just looking for like one more body to pull an oar or to man the sails. I don't know. But when they, when he rebuked the sea, they were left stunned. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is he? he? Is the Lord of glory. He's the incarnate word of the Father, the eternal Son, the maker and sustainer of all things, including the wind and the waves, of all things visible and invisible. And he calls for you as he called the wind and the waves to obey him. He calls for you to repent and trust in him and obey him, just as they had. I want to continue now into chapter 5. It feels like a shift, but the story has a very similar theme. And look at the story of Jesus confronting Legion. I think the people in the town here also failed to respond rightly to Jesus' power and authority. The people see him exercise his power, and they are repulsed by it. We'll read the first 13 verses here. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. In the verse, first 13 verses here of chapter 5, we see Jesus and the disciples reach the other side. They get to the country of the Gerasenes. But instead of it being a place where they can rest and relax, as they might have hoped, there immediately comes this man heading towards 
Jesus. And he's not just any man, but he's someone who's been oppressed by, possessed by, and apparently had his life destroyed by demons. He couldn't live with other people, so he found his home among the tombs and in the mountains, cutting himself and crying out in a loud voice. Though though many had tried to subdue him, there was no chain that could master the demonic power that possessed his body. I find it fascinating to read these verses carefully because it appears Jesus is saying repeatedly in verse 8 that the tense of the verb in Greek, it's imperfect, which implies generally that it's something that keeps on going. Jesus keeps saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And unlike the wind and the seas, which obey Jesus immediately, it seems that this is more of a process. The demon-possessed man sprints towards Jesus, falls on his face, and then the demons within the man speak out. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Oftentimes, Jewish exorcists, those who are trying to call demons out, would use the name of someone mightier than the demon to try to control the demon. And here it seems that the demons are trying to do the thing in reverse, where they're trying to control Jesus by invoking the name of the Father, God Most High. But while the Son voluntarily submits to the Father, particularly as touches his human will, we see that in places like Luke 22. Nonetheless, as it says in John 5 and other places, the Father and the Son are one. They are one God, co-equal in power and authority. Thus, there is no power greater than Jesus. Jesus will not be mastered. Instead, he is the Lord of this situation. In reply to Jesus' repeated commands to come out, we have the demons repeatedly requesting not to be sent far away. Maybe they fear being locked in everlasting chains like we read of in Jude chapter 1 and verse 6. Jesus then demonstrates his power by asking them their name. And their reply is, legion, for we are many. A Roman legion numbered between three and 6,000 men. We don't know if there's literally three to 6,000 demons, but it was enough to possess 2,000 pigs to rush down the hill. So it was obviously a lot of demons. There, There are many inside this man tormenting him. What do we do with how this story turns out? We certainly see the power of Jesus over demonic authorities. Here, a legion of the demonic host appears, and they must ask Jesus permission for their next move. You see that when they're they're asking if they can go into the pigs instead of being sent out of the country. It's reminiscent of Satan appearing before God the Father in Job 1 and having to have permission to do each next step. The devil is real, and he is powerful, The demonic powers that we see in this text outstrip the powers of any mere human. I mean, they couldn't put any chain around legion that held him in place. But demonic power is kept on God's chain. God can and does chain up Satan. He binds the strong man and plunders his house, is what chapter 3 and verse 27 says. And Jesus plunders beyond just the land and the people of Israel. Here is a man in a Gentile region, country of the Gerasenes, and he's freed by Jesus. And God, Jesus, sends the unclean spirits into the unclean pigs who are then drowned in the sea. Some commentators see here a link with Exodus 14, where there is a miraculous sea crossing 
followed by the drowning of Pharaoh's legions. Israel triumphed as the seed of the serpent was crushed by the seed of the woman. And here in Mark 4 through 5, and in in chapter 1 of Mark, he's already established connections with Moses and with the Exodus. Chapters 4 and 5, Jesus leads a miraculous sea crossing, and the legions of Satan's host crash into the sea. Again, the seed of the serpent is crushed by the seed of the woman. The same God who saved the people of Israel is leading a new exodus, freeing people from the power of Satan and from the penalty and power of sin in their lives, freeing them, cleansing them from their uncleanness. All who trust in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, have a greater redeemer and leader than Moses could ever be. And we might be shocked, especially as Iowans, by Jesus allowing these unclean spirits to kill 2,000 pigs. But when he frees this unclean man by sending the unclean spirits into the unclean pigs, he's signifying that he has come to cleanse all who will trust in him. He's willing to clean not only the Jewish people, but all who come to him by faith. And he has he's come to cleanse the Gentiles too. The tragic turn in this story, though, is that the townspeople don't see it. They're, they're like, in the parable of the soils, the one who has no root. The cares of this life, like the monetary value of pigs, prevents them from seeing the amazing deliverance that Jesus has worked for this man. They're simply terrified of Jesus' power and its consequences. Beginning in verse 14, it says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. The people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Are there areas of your life that you are afraid of Jesus cleansing? Precious sins that you want to hold on to, Areas of uncleanness that you are particularly fond of. Could be your lust. Might be your pride. Maybe an idolatry of a political party or a pursuit of success in your work or education that comes at the cost of your family. In in the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, the writer urges, let every heart prepare him room, prepare Jesus room. That's the duty that each one of us has. And you can... Refuse Jesus in an obvious way, like, I'm going to be an atheist. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. But you can also refuse Jesus' room by sitting in church and saying, that one sin, that's too precious to me. You can't have that one, Jesus. I don't want to let go of that sin. Friends, if you resist Jesus over the long haul, he will let you have your way. These people asked Jesus to leave, and he did. Do not resist the Lord. Brothers and sisters, whatever your precious pigs are, don't let them come between you and Jesus. The one character in our text this morning who gets that lesson is the man who was freed from demonic possession. The unclean man meets Jesus and he's cleansed. He's healed from this oppression. He's clothed in his right mind when the people come out to see him. He wants to follow Jesus, going along with him to his next destination. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said, 
to him, go home and tell your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Like the disciples later on in the upper room, this man does not want Jesus to go away. He wants Jesus to stay. He just wants to be with Jesus. But since Jesus has been asked to leave and is leaving, he wants to go along with Jesus. Can I come in the boat? Can I spend time with you? But Jesus surprises us here and says, no, you can't come with me. What's he supposed to do instead? He's supposed to go and tell his friends what the Lord has done for him to proclaim the mercies of the Lord. And here is the great thing about that man. He did exactly what Jesus said. He went and he proclaimed in the Decapolis, which is a group of 10 cities there, east of the Sea of Galilee. And the people who heard it all marveled at the power and mercy of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you know that 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 is the same task that you have today? It If you don't know Jesus, your task is to bow the knee to him in lordship and ask him for cleansing from your sin, your wickedness, your uncleanness. That's a prayer that he's glad to answer, providing you with forgiveness and right standing with God. He will free you like he freed that man. But once you have received that cleansing, he doesn't just say, great, you're clean, now sit there. He says, now go be my messenger. This man didn't get a five-step training in evangelism before Jesus sent him out. Not to dog on training. I'm all about training, studying, reading books, taking classes. Those are all great things. But it wasn't necessary before this man had been given the responsibility to be a messenger. Jesus has told him to go and tell people about the mercy that he had received. Here in our Decapolis, our region of Remsen, Plymouth County, Northwest Iowa, we have the same mission that that man had to tell people what Jesus has done for us. Tell our friends and neighbors how the Lord has been merciful to us. Jesus has the power to calm our troubled hearts, to cleanse our filthy souls. So we ought to look to him for forgiveness and peace and then tell others what we have received. Would you pray with me? Father God, we we are so thankful for what you have done for us in Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have all power and all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We know that one day every knee will bow to you and proclaim that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that gladly and that many would hear from our lips what you have done so that they too might gladly bow the knee rather than have to ruefully bow the knee. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.